Today on Against the Grain, the poorest and most vulnerable regularly find themselves at the mercy of the juvenile and criminal justice systems, through policing and detention, of course, but also child removals and child support, property seizure, probation, and unpaid child labor. Scholar and lawyer Daniel Hatcher argues that the U.S. courts, prosecutors, sheriffs, and probation departments are generating vast amounts of revenue on the backs of poor people, often causing them irreversible harm. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Many things come to mind when thinking about the criminal and juvenile justice systems in the U.S., but for most people, financial profiteering isn't one of them. Daniel Hatcher, however, argues that it should be, that the legal system monetizes and profits from the treatment and mistreatment of children and the poor to the tune of multiple millions of dollars. Hatcher is a former Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney, He's now professor of law in the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic. In his book, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor, he documents his findings of extensive monetizing and profiteering off of poor people. Daniel, you write of a hypothetical child that you're calling Sean, whose father's dead and who's been taken from his mother because of neglect due to poverty and put into foster care. Can you tell us about his fate in the U.S. legal system? Sure. Like you indicate, Sean is uh, hypothetical, but simultaneously real, real to the extent um, that uh, the former clients that I actually represented, both youth uh, and parents and the circumstances in which I describe him, and, and then also real to the data, right, to the statistics regarding youth like Sean. And the S for Sean is instead a dollar sign um, indicating Sean is a commodity. So he's candidly hard to write about because I know Sean, you know, and I, and I, and I know his mother. I, I know their stories and I know multiple stories, right, of youth like him who are, who are pulled into the systems and, and who, who are commodified in these ways. So there's unfortunately multiple ways that, that Sean and, and his mother can be used as a revenue tool rather than served with welfare and justice. Um, Sean initially could be pursued for his survivor benefits. So in the book I discuss how if his, if his father died, right, you know, at the time when he's in foster care, um, the agency will seek out and take the survivor benefits. Um, usually without even telling Sean that he's eligible or that they're applying to take over control of, of, the, of the money. Um, this is a countrywide practice, uh, unfortunately. So he's already begin, be, being monetized initially while, while in foster care. And then if he's, if he's lucky enough to reunify with his mother, who's, who's struggling because of, of the, the, the barriers of poverty and the difficulties of the, of the systems in which they encounter, um, he then um, is still a commodity, right? You know, he's still targeted um, by the systems that are intended to serve him. And what I uncover some examples in the book, he might be targeted, for example, by juvenile court systems, right? Some juvenile courts um, are actually contracting to generate revenue when a child is removed from their home in juvenile delinquency proceedings. So, you know, Sean, if he gets in a little bit of trouble and, and you know, look, having been in the foster care system and struggling with, with poverty, foster children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, at twice the level of veterans of war, right? So, like, he, he is going to act out at, at times because of what he's been through. So, so um, the court might generate revenue through um, his removal, again, um, and then the court might have an additional contract to generate revenue through the pursuit of his mother for something called child support, but it's actually used to repay the cost of foster care, potentially that the court just ordered, 
right? You know, so again, there's this multiple ways in which he and his family can be monetized. And that's just really scratching the surface. In the, in the book, I get into even more details, you know, prosecutors, probation departments, policing agencies, detention facilities, right, are all looking at youth like Sean as a commodity. How much of the money that is made, that you write about, um, made off of sort of monetizing the situation of kids and families and poor people, how much of that is made by directly extracting the money from those poor people? And how much of it is from pocketing money from other branches of the government? Right. Well, it's, it's a good question. And the, the revenue mechanisms happen in a variety of ways like that. You know, so county by county, really state by state, you're going to see variations and, and not just in the variations in the amount of, of revenue um, extracted from, from low income families and children, um, but also the various iterations of, of the re revenue machinations. Um, um, there's an example uh, I describe um, out of Alabama for example, where you're, here you're just looking at fines and fees, where courts can you know, order initial um, fines, maybe from a very minor misdemeanor, sometimes uh, simple traffic violations um, against a low-income person, right? Quickly add on additional interest and fees on top of the fines, right? Um, bringing in um, probation um, departments sometimes to help, um, and then often the prosecutors. Um, as well. And often this pursuit of, of fines and fees against, and against the poor, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars across the country, um, is shared between the branches of these justice systems. The courts, prosecutors, probation, sometimes the policing agency will share um, in, the, in the takings. Um, and in Alabama, you know, some of the um, information I, I discuss in the book shows that um, in some of the prosecutor's offices in Alabama, they're actually generating 70%, up to 70% of their total budget through this process of extracting fines and fees from the poor, right? Um, so, and that's just one, one example. And then as you indicate, you know, it can be also diverting funds from other agencies, right? You know, so you can have um, the example, and I could talk about a little more of courts tapping in and gaining access to federal foster care 4e um, revenue it's it's uh, that's the legal um, term that's used for the funding stream from the federal government intended to provide funds to foster care agencies courts have tapped into that in the last book I, I wrote the poverty industry um, I uncover a lot of these revenue mechanisms that states are pursuing and diverting Medicaid right maximizing medica Medicaid intended to provide um, desperately needed services to low-income populations, but then diverting those funds to general coffers at the state or county level. As you've described, we're talking about significant amounts of money, really significant amounts of money. And I wanted to ask you, um, before we get into some of the nitty-gritty about how this money is extracted, which, as you say, varies state by state, but I wonder if you could place it in a broader context. How long has this sort of thing been going on and is it coming in the context of underfunding of the courts and other parts of the government? Or would you say it's more driven by an impulse by those entities to just make as much money as possible? Um, I, would, I would say yes, unfortunately, to both of, of those last questions and in terms of how long it's it's been going on you know and variations a long time you know really since the founding of this country some of the original practices that i write about right if you just consider sheriff sales for example on which sheriffs again will literally um you know profit from um confiscating property from the poor and then selling them off getting a commission um literally that's just one of the ways that that sheriff's offices are generating just millions um, probably billions across the country in the pursuit of the poor. Uh, but sheriff sales originated, uh, unfortunately, with a stark history um, of literally selling enslaved human beings on the courthouse steps, right? And uh, the courts might have ordered um, uh, an amount owed against um, an individual who enslaved um, those, those individuals originally, and then the sheriffs, you know, will confiscate the humans, right, and sell them in these sheriff's sales and, and even then getting 
a take, getting a percentage, right, of, of, of that money. Um, so that same process of sheriff sales still exists today. Um, so still from that unfortunate beginning. And, and now, like when the, with the, uh, the, the examples I uncover in the book, um, there are increasing also through <clears throat> processes of, of um, new technologies, right? And, you know, and, and over time, the, the ability to determine these, these new ways to generate the money, even, even including the use of now artificial intelligence, right? Algorithms, children are literally plugged into equations, right? You know, that, I, that, I, that I've uncovered in the actual contract documents. Right. And, you know, using the children in these equations, you know, they can generate more revenue through them. And you know, we need to remember with that, like, you know, you start looking at these numbers, the, the math equations, the, the revenue mechanisms, the data reports, you know, report after port number after number. Um, and you can almost become numb to the numbers. But we have to remember that each number is a child. Right. You know, each child with a story and the harm is being monetized. So back to your question, you know, I do think, you know, there are sometimes um, some justice institutions may need either additional revenue or they need their revenue to come from a neutral source, right? They need that to come from either the state or county level through general fair taxation, right? Not through these um, revenue schemes, right? You know, when you when you end up where the 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 courts are foster care agencies, right, or probation departments, or you you literally using the individuals they're supposed to serve, right, and monetizing them, it turns their mission on its head and causes just immense harm. And, and then I do think in that process, right, I also think, um, including with their, their increasing collaboration with private actors, they're increasingly acting like those private actors. They're taking on a mindset of a factory business, right, and, and increasingly focusing more on that goal of maximizing efficiency and revenue rather than maximizing welfare and justice. Well, let's talk about some of the ways that is happening. And you're arguing that this is something that is extensive and pretty much unheard of by most people. One thing, though, that has had a bit more attention in recent years has been to do with fines and fees leveled against people in the court system. Can you give us some examples of the ways that fines or fees are used to generate significant revenue? Sure, and, and I agree. That has um, luckily been getting increased attention, both sometimes by, by the media and, and an excellent program such as um, your own um, and through uh, advocates um, and journalists you know, uh, writing about these issues. And you're seeing some improvement. Um, not enough, not nearly enough. Um, but the way they can work, uh, again, it can be at the county level, at, at the state level. Um, there's a, a, a court that I use as, a, as an example in Oregon, uh, refers to itself as, as a justice court, right, as its name. But, but then when you um, unpack and look at their, the court's budget documents, um, um, the, the judge there, you know, municipal judge, would be ordering fines Right against the poor person again, it could come from maybe a misdemeanor, sometimes just a simple traffic um, violation, right? And if it's against somebody who's who's low income and they don't have the ability to pay, you know, maybe it's five hundred dollars and they don't have the money right away, it's instantly right increasing through additional fees, right? On top on top of that, you know, late fees and then service fees, right, and then interest on top on top of that, um, quickly ballooning from maybe five hundred dollars to multiple thousand. Dollars, right? This this happens time and time again, um, and then the courts work with the policing, you know, the enforcement um, branches, and it can be the the local police officers, the the sheriffs, and some jurisdictions it's probation, right? Sometimes the prosecutors are helping and taking a cut, and then they share in that revenue, right? When they are able to extract money from the poor individual over time, right? They're generating that revenue for themselves. So it creates incentives and in, 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 in each of the branches of our justice systems, right? The, the courts, if they're generating revenue from themselves through issuing orders and fines and fees against low income and, and people, and that generates revenue for the courts, right? They're incentivized. And that's the opposite of what's required of our courts, right? Under, under a constitutional requirement of due process and partiality, 
um, our justice officials are supposed to be only guided by that pure pursuit of impartial, equal justice, not money, right? So when you have a money incentive, that, that's, that's a direct violation of, of that constitutional requirement. I've seen examples with um, where probation departments, entire probation divisions sometimes will be all about collecting these fines and fees um, against the poor, right? Uh, Georgia created even a structure called pay-only probation, where the whole purpose of this probation division is to seek out and extract um, any, any, any payment it can get from the poor. Again, generating revenue for the system, um, you know, where it goes for the probation departments, often sharing with the courts. Um, and in many of these jurisdictions, what, and yet with, when the probation officers are enlisted as, as sort of the factory foot soldiers, right, of the, of the revenue enforcement, um, often a condition of probation, right, will be required to pay those full fines and fees. So what that means is if you have a low-income individual who's struggling, right, and the money keeps um, increasing, and then the probation department is adding additional fees, right, they're requiring additional probationary services, right, and, and charging for, for all of that, so, so it's always increasing. The person isn't able to pay, and then the only reason they can get out of that destructive cycle is to pay the full amount that they can't afford to pay, right, so often they can never escape um, that, that process. Daniel Hatcher is my guest. He's professor of law in the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic. We're discussing his book, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and I'm Sasha Lilly. Well, tell us about the debt buying industry. How has that gotten embedded within the legal system as a way of generating revenue? The debt buying industry is is just huge um, across the country, and it's it's an example as well that that while the justice institutions and the human service agencies are monetizing children and the poor, right? Private actors are often still doing the same, right? So so what the debt buying industry is 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 you might have alleged small debts owed by low income individuals. Um, they can be packaged and sold, sold again, sold again, pennies on the dollar. Um, literally, there's been some reports, federal reports, showing that they can often purchase these for sometimes even four cents on the dollar. Many have uh, of, the, of the alleged debts have defenses, including potential statute of limitations, um, arguments that the debts have been paid, right, other concerns. Like, I've seen multiple times where the, these debt-buying companies don't even have the full documentation to show that they adequately own the debt that they purchased. So it's actually somewhat similar to, to what we saw with the mortgage crisis, right, where mortgages were, were sold and packaged and resold again, right, and, and robo-signing was happening. Very similar to what's happening with the debt-buying industry, smaller amounts, right? They might be ranging from, you know, a few hundred dollars to, to several thousand dollars, but a huge impact on low-income individuals. Right, most, most of whom don't have access to a lawyer. Um, most of these proceedings go forward with uh, a default type proceeding that they're able to get the, the judgments. The courts will often uh, generate additional revenue through all the filing fees, right, and, and the process for that. And meanwhile, it's these, these debt buyers are, are crowding the foundational courts across the country, right? There's been some reports that show, like in some jurisdictions, it can be you know, upwards to half, right? Sometimes potentially even more of the, of the docket, um, right? Taken up by all these debt buying firms. Um, and, and it's just another example of the immense financial harm that, that low-income individuals are facing. The state of Ohio appears to be a trailblazer in the practices of monetizing and profiting off of children and poor people. Can you explain how Ohio generates revenue off of kids and and how that came to be sure and and i think it's an unfortunate and, and unconstitutional story right in terms of what's happening in ohio and it's not just ohio there are multiple states that are following very similar um contractual deals um, but what i uncover in the book is um, the juvenile courts in ohio um, are actually signing onto contracts um, to become part of the executive branch to take on actually the foster care agency role. 
the juvenile courts are actually contracting to become the local foster care agencies through these contracts. And if you, you know, pause to just think about that for a second. You know, we had a revolutionary war in, in this country some years back, right, to escape the idea of tyranny, right, and to escape the realities of tyranny, of, of centralized power in the hands of one entity, in that case, uh, the English crown. And um, the structure of our government at its founding, right, in response to this wanting to um, push back against the threat of, of tyranny, is a separation of powers, right? The crucial separation and independence between the branches of, of government, between the judiciary, the executive branch, right, and our legislatures. Um, and here, um, and, and most importantly within that is the indep independence of the judiciary, but here the juvenile courts um, are literally contracting to take on that executive branch role to become part of the executive branch and become the foster care agency. And then essentially what they're doing, you know, like if the, if the court has, has put on its court hat and adjudicated child delinquent, a low income child, a poor child as delinquent. Um, and then the court contractually can put on its foster care placement agency hat right, place the child out of the home or, or label the child as a, as a foster care candidate, you know, with, with constant processing, sometimes even potentially placing the child in a residential treatment center operated by the courts, right, um, and then the court puts its court hat back on again, rules on itself, rules on its own actions, and if it rules on its own actions favorably, it can generate more federal foster care revenue. It's pulling in this Title IV-E um, federal foster care agency stream. Literally, the more children, and there's a quote, you know, from an actual uh, juvenile court judge in the book, um, the more children removed from their homes, the more revenue the courts can make. And it gets even more concerning than that, right? You know, like, it's, it's not just that they're, that they're generating revenue from, from children when they're uh, potentially removed um, through services, Right? They're also using the children to, to pay overhead, um, administrative costs. The administrative cost claiming that they do um, is actually often greater than right, the actual services. And you know, there again, like you know, most nonprofits are, are they're criticized if, if, they're, if, you know, if they're, their overhead percentage might equal like 15% or something like that. Here I've seen numbers where the administrative costs of the claiming are 300%, right, over three times, right, the, the amount. And they're using children to fund overhead for just about everything. It could be salaries, fringe benefits, um, even depreciation of courthouse buildings, right? I even saw a training um, slide where it discussed um, using or claiming the administrative costs of the process of claiming administrative costs. Right, you know, through the children. I mean, that's that becomes like a pyramid scheme, you, and it's almost like you know, like you almost have to laugh. But man, this is using children, right? You know, to to fund overhead. So it just couldn't be more more stark and concerning. So, in other words, in the state of Ohio, there's an incentive both to take kids from their families and then to keep them from being returned to their families. Is that right? There's certainly an incentive built into these contracts to continue processing the children. Yes, either in removals or labeled as foster care candidates at constant risk of removal, right? And then the probation departments will be constantly, you know, um, um, inflicting requirements on, on, on behalf of the family, on behalf of the children, ongoing monitoring and processing, um, you know, harmful um, interventions, potentially even ankle monitors, right? Then there could be more additional costs charged for that. And all while the children are processed, even if they're not removed, right, they can be generating more revenue. So, so yes, and, and I argue in the book, um, because of this financial incentive, it is unconstitutional, right? Both because the violation of separation of powers, right, what we um, discussed before, but because our, our due process clause requires impartiality, and not just actual impartiality, but the appearance impartiality, of impartiality. So if you have a structure, right, that is generating revenue, literally the more children that are removed from their homes, right, the more revenue um, that system can make, that's the opposite of impartial, right? You know, and so I argue it's unconstitutional, I argue it's unethical. Is it being challenged in any way, given as you say, sort of unethical on multiple levels? Not that I've seen yet. And, and like you indicate, I think these practices, like this one in particular, has been largely 
unknown. And again, it's not just Ohio. I've seen similar contracts in, in Illinois, Louisiana, other states. Um, and most of this is, is um, happening in the dark, right? Because, you know, especially when we're dealing with youth in the juvenile system, these are um, largely confidential systems, right? You know, so to, um, you know, have access to and then be able to understand to decipher, like even getting access to the contracts, you know, it can be confusing at first to, to get it, to get it, uh, you know, um, access to the math equations that are used, right, to decipher the math. Um, so there hasn't been enough awareness yet, and I, I do hope that, that that happens, and that you and we may need litigation. You know, I initially hope that those of us in the justice systems right our own wrongs, right? You know that you know those um, in the juvenile courts in Ohio, those in the other branches, the probation departments, right? You know realize right the ethical and constitutional concerns with these practices, and simply take the ethical step to stop them. Right. If that doesn't happen, there may need to be litigation, you know, through some of the excellent organizations that are out there. How do juvenile and family courts make money from poor children and their parents through child support? It's another important question, and and that can even piggyback on the example we just talked about. Right. So so you could have a child, you know, Sean, you know, who who I write about in the book, Um, the juvenile court might be generating revenue initially from his removal, adjudicating Sean as delinquent, right? Ordering him to be removed, right? You know, you know, operating as the foster care agency and generating revenue through Sean, literally by, by removing him from his home. And then when that happens, the court um, might have, may like to have an additional contract um, to generate more revenue from the child support system. Right. And in this case, it's another federal funding stream called Title 4D, right, under the same larger Social Security Act. But it's it's money from the federal government that's supposed to be available to child support agencies, right, to help them serve children. Um, but what's happening again, the courts are, are literally contracting to tap in to this money. And here in Ohio, you have the 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 child support agencies, the statewide agencies, right, literally essentially buying the services of the judicial officials that they appear before, right? So you can picture that as private parties and, and you know, in, in a lawsuit, right? And one of the parties is paying the salary of the judge, right? You know, is paying this and, and not, not just paying the salary, they're paying all the administrative costs, overhead, you know, maybe even the cost of bar dues, right? And travel expenses um, and the like. I've seen contracts where um, the language is literally used that they're literally purchasing court orders. Um, through these contracts. So then the courts can pull in more revenue after Sean is removed by pursuing his poor mother, right, to pay something that's called child support, but it's to repay the cost of foster care that the court just ordered, right? And that makes it even harder for the, for the struggling mother, right, to be able to reunify with her son. And all they both want is just, just be together. But meanwhile, the family is being monetized. Their harm is being monetized. Daniel Hatcher is my guest. He's professor of law at the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic and is the author of Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System, Commodifies Children and the Poor. That's published by UC Press, and you can find a link to it at our website, againstthegrain.org. He's also the author of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, and he was formerly Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you have been talking about multiple entities that are involved in, mainly under the radar, profiting off of commodifying, monetizing the situation of poor people and children And I wanted to ask you about prosecutors, what role they play in their departments in entering to contracts that profit from things like child support and foster care and the broader juvenile justice system. Sure. Well, and unfortunately, they're a big part of the of this factory business that that I uncover in the book and prosecutors to start, you know, the role they're supposed to play um, under ethical rules across the country, you know, whether it's a federal level or state or county, prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice, 
right? You know, they're not supposed to exist to make money. They're not supposed to ex exist to, you know, for competition, right? To, to check up numbers of wins, right? Their, their client, so to speak, is really the people and justice, right? And that's just such a crucial role. And if it's taken ethically seriously, right, it's, it's a crucially important, you know, role for all of us. Um, so when you have contractual incentives, right, built in for, for these prosecutors, it's, it's just desperately concerning in terms of the potential harm that it can cause. Prosecutors wield immense power, right, in investigations and bringing cases forward. So again, you know, somewhat like the contracts we, we discussed with juvenile courts, there are contracts in which prosecutors' offices um, across the country and, and various sometimes state level, again, sometimes county level, um, are contracting to generate revenue from the low-income litigants. Um, I've seen uh, Title IV-E foster care contracts where in some jurisdictions um, prosecutors can actually generate more revenue if more poor children are removed from their home. Um, there's a math equation and you know uh, some of the example contracts I found again and what it shows is um, it uses what's what's called often the penetration rate and you know that almost sounds initially like an economic term or, or something but what it is is literally the percentage of poor children removed from their homes compared to non-poor children and the greater that percentage of poor children compared to non-poor children removed from their homes, the greater the penetration rate, and that then becomes a multiplier. So in, in, in some of these contracts that I've seen, the prosecutors um, will use that multiplier, and that becomes the source of much of the revenue under the contract. So again, the more poor kids removed from their home compared to non-poor kids, they can draw down more revenue. Um, similarly, in, in child support contracts, um, where prosecutors' offices, again, are targeting and obtaining revenue through the prosecution in such a way that, that they're incentivized. The more cases they prosecute, um, the more um, enforcement tools that are used, right? The more they do pursue those wins that they're not supposed to be, you know, as they call them, you know, like that they're not supposed to be driven um, to obtain. They're only supposed to be driven by justice, right? But the more they prosecute, the more revenue they, they can generate. And then, you know, like you get out, you get outside of, of these foster care and child support contracts, you know, we're talking before about fines and fees. Um, you know, again, you know, local prosecutors, sometimes statewide, are, are bringing in just millions often through the prosecution, right, taking part in that process of fines and fees. There's an example I write about in, in, in the chapter about policing um, agencies with civil forfeitures, right, and I can talk about that a little more, but in many of these situations where properties literally seized often without even um, formally filing charges right you know taking just about anything that they can get their hands on sold off right and then the money is divided and the prosecutors and the policing agency sometimes the courts will share um, in those takings so it's just example after example and, and as I mentioned before in, in Alabama where 70% um, of the budget of, of some of the county um, prosecutors there, up to 70% generated through the pursuit of fines and fees against the poor. Meanwhile, like while they're generating that revenue, they're sharing, they're sharing some of that money with the courts as well. So even after sharing the revenue with the courts who issued the orders, right, they're still generating enough to, to have that level of almost 70% of their budget. That's the opposite, again, of what's required of due process and partiality. And it's the opposite of their ethical obligations uh, to, as supposed to be ministers of justice. I wanted to ask you about probation departments, which you spoke about a little earlier in the program and how probation departments will be involved in extracting fees from people. And I wanted to ask you if you could talk about also the role of probation departments in extracting unpaid labor from people within the justice system. Right. Well, again, you know, like it's like it's unending for, for low income families and children. Now we have another branch right and the probation departments are a huge business um, across the country um, you know i write about in the book one example is just one county los angeles county probation right you know it describes itself as the largest probation department in the nation with more than 6,600 employees 
providing services to 57,000 adult probationers and more than 12,000 juveniles with an annual budget of $852 million, right? So this is a large factory, you know, that, that's, that's happening. And the probation departments, you know, as you indicate, they're often enlisted, you know, in this um, pursuit and this enforcement um, um, function against endless fines and fees um, against the poor. And it becomes even worse you know, when often when the probation departments are enlisted in that enforcement because while they're pursuing uh, the, the fines and fees, they're adding more. They're requiring intrusive services. It could be something similar as trainings. Um, they require um, an ankle monitor, charge extensive fees for that, which brings in more revenue, right? And it is constantly adding to this unpayable debt, right, that the low-income person is, is struggling with. Right, so then it just adds on to more that the probation department is is pursuing, right? And then endless drug tests, charging for that, right? Any kind of monitoring, charging charging for that, it just keeps going. It becomes cyclical. Uh, so they're, they're pursuing these fines and fees, often requiring the full payment of fines and fees as a condition of probation, so the people literally can't break free of, of probation. And then, as you indicate, sometimes are requiring um, unpaid work. Right, and that can happen both under under probation departments, sometimes in, in collaboration with courts, sometimes sheriffs uh, divisions and the like. But literally unpaid labor, and then it's not just that that individuals are forced to work for free, right? And and um, the revenue that can generate, right? You know, for for free labor, but they're often even charged to work for free, right? You know, like and that pulls in even more, you know, like so. And then you know, probation department. So that's happening. Meanwhile, probation. Um, juvenile probation departments are often part of this um, revenue contractual extraction, right, for foster care revenue. Um, and that's happening in California, for example. You know, the pro pro probation departments um, are, again, you know, the more children that are either removed from their homes um, or continually processed as foster care candidates at constant risk of removal, the more revenue the probation departments in California are generating. Just one county, Orange County Probation Department, it generated over $5.7 million um, in this foster care revenue in just one year. And I found a training slide that talked about this, this process of maximizing revenue through this foster care candidate process for the probation departments. And the training was, was literally um, instructing, suggesting that uh, you know, you need to have more negative information on the reports, right? If you're filling out a, out a report um, to make sure essentially it sounds bad, um, like the one example that even listed was if you write all okay, that's not a good report because that means you can't generate the revenue anymore. Like you got to keep processing the child in the system, right, in order to keep pulling in the funds. So tell us about how sheriff's departments and police are also in on this. You touched on the seizure of assets and then those being divvied up, well, sold and, and the proceeds divvied up. What other ways do the police make money off of the poor? Sure. Well, and, and the civil assets uh, forfeiture, right? I mean, that's a huge business uh, across the country. Just And the sheriff's departments, you know, policing departments are pulling in millions upon millions um, uh, through this process. Again, with that, they often, um, you know, and often in conjunction with prosecutors, um, and which is happening in the courts. Often criminal charges aren't even required, so, you know, simply just the, the allegation. Um, and then they confiscate anything they can find. And it can be any, you know, cash, it could be a car itself, it could be tools of the trade, you name it, right? And then sold off, right? Often without even, again, charging, right, any kind of crime officially. And, you know, for a low-income individual to respond to that, you know, what they do is they file a complaint, not against the person, but against the property. Right, not an actual criminal complaint, and they and they seize it, take it, sell it off, and divide up the loot. Um, and for the poor person, like to challenge that, like they don't have access to lawyers, you know, in these cases, almost never, um, you know, because they can't afford it. Um, and then and then to take the step of you know challenging the actions of potentially you know the prosecutors and sheriffs departments working in sync together, most won't. Um, so they so they pull in millions um, through, through that process. Other ways, um, again, you know, sheriffs are frequently helping with the pursuit of fines and fees. Um, evictions, um, that sheriffs generate revenue through evictions. And one of the striking things that happened during COVID, um, right, especially the early years, um, when we had 
really necessary and important um, pauses um, across the country to the eviction process, right? So uh, crucial for um, the, um, the public well-being and public safety um, for all of us. And, you know, again, like so sheriffs, you look up, you know, look up any, any sheriff's department policing agency across the country, you're going to find some variation of a mission to serve and protect, right? To serve and protect the welfare and safety, especially of the most vulnerable among us. So if you've got a, um, a statewide, right, um, change requirement that we need to pause evictions because that's in the well-being, all right, you know, in the safety of individuals, that should be right in line with the mission of the sheriff's departments. But the sheriff's departments, you know, you look at their annual reports, they lost money, right? You know, so they need the harm to happen to make money, right? That's, and it's uncovered, you know, through, um, you know, the starkness of what happened and COVID, and then there's more. Like I, I write about an example out of New York, um, where they have city marshals um, that that they're called, and they're, they even though they're called city marshals, they don't actually work for the city. Um, they're literally like hired guns, you know, like bounty hunters, um, and they don't even generate a salary. The only the money that they make is purely from the bounty, um, from from pursuing the poor utility shutoffs, evictions, right? Um, foreclosures, repossessions of cars, it goes on and on. And then and the, the government's own data for the city marshals, um, the average um, revenue for, for a city marshal um, after costs, $420,000 annually, right? You know, so they're, they're profiting from the poor um, and, and not just profiting from the poor, profiting from the harm. Of, of the poor. Um, and it just, you know, so it's, it becomes this, you know, industrialized factory assembly line, you know, of all the branches of government taking part, but almost more of a disassembly line, right? Where you have already struggling individuals are then deconstructed along the line for every possible penny. And of course, what you just mentioned with the city marshals is especially striking because there's no argument to be made that what they're doing is make sense on behalf of the public to be enforcing for private entities repossessions of cars or you know evicting tenants or shutting off utilities is just simply a private exercise with revenues i guess to a privatized public entity while that's happening they're actually simultaneously generating revenue for the city Right. The city requires what is essentially is a kickback, you know, of, of those collections against the poor. And again, under the city's numbers, you know, it's it's um, about forty seven thousand annually per city marshal um, and, and revenue is pull, being pulled in to the city. So you're seeing not just um, the privatization, you know, the outsourcing that happens, um, which which, you know, I look I uncover a lot of concerns with that in itself. But what I find even more concerning when I'm uncovering in the book is that. The government actors, you know, the, the, our justice institutions, our, our welfare agencies that are supposed to, their mission isn't supposed to be generating profit and revenue, right? They're supposed to exist to maximize welfare and justice. But they're increasingly, while they're partnering with private actors, they're acting like the private actors. They're taking on that mindset, right, of, of focusing on that factory goal, maximize efficiency and revenue rather than maximizing welfare and justice. Indeed. I'm speaking with the author of Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. His name is Daniel Hatcher. He teaches law at the University of Baltimore. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. How does the system make money off of undocumented immigrants? Well, that's another um, stark example often with sheriff's offices. For example, we'll do that. So the sheriffs, you know, you could have one one office, you know, one one sheriff's department might be generating revenue through, you know, fines and fees, through civil forfeitures, um, taking a um, a commission right on um, enforcing court ordered debts. Um, I've seen those 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 commission rates from you know five percent sometimes up to ten percent, um, and you know again a, a contingency fee. You know that's the opposite of impartiality, right? And then they are often contracting. Right. You know, and through again, just to pull down another, another federal funding stream. And if they 
will lock up and hold um, um, in jail long enough undocumented individuals, they can generate more revenue, right? So they're, again, they're incentivized to detain, to incarcerate. You write that another part of this is the jailing of children and the poor, how the system makes money off of juvenile facilities and other forms of incarceration. And like with many of the other things that you've been describing this hour, that these profit-driven entities, particularly while they harm poor people across the board, they're disproportionately harming poor African-American children. Can you tell us about both the profiting off of juvenile facilities and the particular impacts on African-American kids? Uh, yes, and, and, and of all the, the revenue mechanisms uh, that the book uncovers, all have just a, just a starkly disproportionate impact based upon race um, and income. But the, the racial disproportionality is just, is just stark and harmful. Um, desperately harmful across the country. And so, you know, here in, in this chapter, I, 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 um, I look at um, all the various uh, iterations of detention facilities, and those can be literally called juvenile detention facilities, sometimes um, um, juvenile prisons, um, you know, and these adult, you know, facilities as well are engaged in the same practices. Uh, but they can be labeled, you know, better sounding words like residential treatment centers, um, camps, um, sometimes academies, um, and the like. But they all, they all are detaining children, and they're all generating revenue from that process. And that's for-profit companies, nonprofit organizations, right? I've seen there are multiple um, religious organizations. If, if you have a detention facility, a residential treatment center that um, claims um, a religious affiliation in, in many states, um, they're not just then able to generate revenue through the, through the detaining the youth, um, holding and processing the youth. They're often are able to escape um, any oversight, you know, licensing or any or even oversight by the child welfare agencies. Um, so start concern. We have no idea often what's happening in many of these facilities. And then you have you can have start with a small company that might that might. You know, buy you know one or a couple facilities. That's bought by a larger company, bought again by a larger company. You know, and sold and resold, right, multiple times. Where you get where you have companies so large that they're trading on the stock market, right, or buying and selling what are essentially bodies in the beds. You know what I write about. You know, they're they're selling these facilities, and um, all of the facilities, whether they're private, for profit, nonprofit, religious, government run facilities, they're all following a similar harmful business model to maximize occupancy, right? Maximize those bodies in the beds while minimizing cost of care. Uh, and you see that in some of these juvenile facilities. If, if you, um, you have less staff or have more, more poorly trained staff, right? You pay them less, right? If you use forms of seclusion, um, right, it's, it's cheaper, right, restraint, um, even use of psychotropic medications as a form of, of restraint, right, if you cheapen the cost of care while maximizing op occupancy, you can generate more revenue through the process, and that, that business model results in just immense harm across the country to these youth, sometimes deadly, as I write about in the book. You've been speaking during the hour about how different agencies and entities within the U.S. state benefit, profit, commodify the situation of children and poor people within the criminal justice system on multiple levels and the way that sometimes extracting the money from other branches of, of the system, and, but often taking the money directly from the most poor people in society. One thing that was really striking to read was about how children can become in debt to these state entities and that their earnings then have to go to paying back, and I put that in quotes, the state for what the state has done to them. I wonder if you could tell us about that dimension of this story. Right, and, and, and it's... Um... A stark dimension, right? So you have situations where, for example, um, youth, you know, imagine Sean again, pulled into 
the child welfare system into the foster care system. And then um, the agency, who's, who the, the, the government agency, the foster care agency, whose sole reason is to have existing is to serve and protect that child's welfare and best interests, right? Maybe seeking out his resources. Um, if his parent died, we'll, we'll seek out and take his survivor benefits. In multiple states, uh, if a child has a parent who died in the military and the child's eligible, eligible for veterans assistance um, benefits, the state will take that. And as you indicate, in, in, in many jurisdictions, if even the child's own earnings, right? They'll indicate like the child needs to pay for his own care. And look, and this, uh, he didn't decide to be pulled into foster care. Right. You know, like this, uh, you could have a 16 year old child, you know, who's, who's just beginning to, you know, pull in some some small earnings, you know, like and, and those can be taken. The regulation in Maryland allows for that. I found a regulation in Nebraska that the agency promulgated that it will even allow it to take a burial plot from a youth if a youth happens to have that right, you know, through inheritance or what have you through the family as an asset. You know, literally going after just about anything that it can take from the from the child in order to pay back the cost of care, um, right? And then that becomes a revenue source. Well, let me end with a rather large question, which is, what do you think should be done given how extremely deep and extensive this seems to run through the legal system in the U.S.? Right. Well, I, I think it starts with, with shows like yours, you know, and like and, and other news sources, you know, like it starts with awareness. You know, as we indicated, you know, um, we need people to know. Right. And like because if, if we don't know, we can't we can't work towards fixing these problems. And we need full awareness um, to understand the intricacies so we can work towards not just a solution, but the right solutions. Right. We need we need the right fixes. So it, so um, change begins with awareness. Um, and then like. I, I, those of us in the justice systems, right? You know, and I include myself as an attorney. I'm an officer of the court, um, judge, judicial officials, um, prosecutors, probation officials, right? Policing officers, right? Need to hold themselves, right? Accountable and true to their ethics. And you know, if, if the justice officials, justice systems don't right their own wrongs, we need more litigation um, across the country. And, and there has been some some good examples, and, and we unfortunately will likely need more, but it, it starts with us. Daniel Hatcher, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Daniel Hatcher is professor of law at the University of Baltimore. He's a former Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney. We've been discussing in Justice Inc. how America's justice system commodifies children and the poor out from UC Press. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune in again next time. 